Amen. Amen. All right, we're there in Luke chapter number 18. And of course, we are going through a series here at our church called Journey with Jesus. And it really is a verse-by-verse study through the gospel of Luke. And we have been studying the life of the Lord Jesus Christ in this gospel, uh, which is a comprehensive account of the life of Jesus. And this morning, we find ourselves here in Luke chapter number 18 and in verse number 18. And of course, we come to this conversation between the Lord Jesus Christ and a certain individual who is often referred to as the rich young ruler. And Jesus here has a conversation with this rich young ruler. And we're going to dissect this conversation this morning. There's several things that we can learn regarding sinners and salvation and soul winning uh, from this passage of Scripture. And I'd like you to notice there in Luke chapter 18 and verse number 18, the Bible says this, and a certain ruler asked him. So, of course, we have this young man, this ruler. We'll see later on in the passage that he's rich. He comes to the Lord Jesus Christ saying, Good master, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Here we have this rich young ruler coming to Jesus, and he asks a very specific question. He asks a question regarding salvation. When he uses the term there, eternal life, that would be the the same in their culture as us asking the question, you know, what do I need to do to go to heaven? He says, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus begins to deal with this uh, young man. Now, if you're taking notes this morning, and I always encourage you to take notes on the back of your course of the week, there's a place for you to write down uh, some notes. Maybe you can write these uh, statements. I'd like to give you three points this morning regarding this rich young ruler. And I'd like for us to begin by looking at the assumptions of the rich young ruler. The assumptions of the rich young ruler. I want you to notice that this rich young ruler comes to Jesus with a couple of assumptions. He is asking this question, but the question is within the context of some assumptions that he's made that are incorrect assumptions that Jesus is going to do his best to correct. The first assumption is this. He assumes that sinful men can be good. He assumes that normal, sinful men and women can be good. He says there in verse 18, uh, he says, Good master, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And you need to understand something about this story. And the story can be sometimes confusing to people because of the way that Jesus deals with this person. And I want you to understand that Jesus loves this uh, young man. We're told in a different account that he looked at him with compassion. He cares about him, but this young man is coming to Jesus with a little bit of a hostile attitude. Now, I don't believe that he's necessarily being hostile outwardly, but because of his beliefs and his assumptions, he has some ideas that make him already hostile to the message of the gospel. And Jesus, of course, being God in the flesh, knowing the hearts of all men and knowing the thoughts of all men, is dealing with this individual uh, regarding uh, that hostility. He comes to Jesus, again, notice there verse 18, and a certain ruler asked him, saying, good master, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus begins to deal with this young man in verse 19, and Jesus said unto him, notice what Jesus says. He says, why callest thou me good? Jesus asked this question because the, the, the rich young ruler refers to Jesus as a good master. And he says, why callest thou me good? And then Jesus explains what he means by that. He says, none is good, save one. That phrase, save one, means except for one. 
He says, none is good except for one, that is God. So this rich young ruler says, you know, good master. He says, good master to the Lord Jesus Christ. And Jesus says, well, why are you calling me good? And Jesus is highlighting the fact that this person does, is not coming to Jesus with the belief that Jesus is God. He believes that Jesus is just a good master. And this is today, people who deny the deity of Jesus Christ, other religions that will say that Jesus is not uh, God, but they'll say, well, he was a good teacher. He was a good prophet. This is what the attitude that this young man is coming to Jesus with. He says, good master. And Jesus says, well, look, if you're going to call me good, you need to realize someone, uh, something. Only one person is good, and that is God. So if you're calling me good, then you're calling me God. And if you don't believe I'm God, then why callest thou me good? None is good save one that is God. Now, I want you to notice that this is something that is taught throughout the Bible. There are many references we could go to. Let me just give you one real quickly. Keep your finger there in Luke 18. That's our text for this morning. But go with me, if you would, to the book of Romans, Romans chapter number 3. You're probably familiar with this passage, but I'd like you to see it. Romans chapter number 3. You're there in Luke. You'll go past the book of John, past the book of Acts, into the book of Romans. Luke, John, Acts, Romans. Romans chapter number 3 and verse number 10. Romans chapter number 3 and verse 10. This is fundamental, and especially in a church like ours with a lot of soul winners, it's something we cover a lot on a weekly basis as we go out soul winning. But it's good for us to be reminded about these things. Romans 3.10 says this, As it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. The word righteous there, if you notice the first part of the word righteous, it's the word right. And according to, in, in the Bible here, when the Bible uses the word righteous, it is in reference to someone who always does right or someone who is without wrong. And here the Bible tells us there is none righteous, no, not one. There is no one who's without wrong. There is no one who always does right. You and I would use the word perfect. And here the Bible says that no one is perfect. There's none righteous, no, not one. But it's not just that. It's not just that no one is righteous or no one is perfect. Notice verse 11. There is none that understandeth. There is none that seeketh after God. They are all gone out of the way. They are all together become unprofitable. I want you to notice this little phrase, the last part of verse 12. It says, there is none that doeth good, no, not one. According to the Bible, there is none that doeth good. No one is good. One major attack that people have, you can make your way back to the Gospel of Luke if you would, Luke chapter 18. Oftentimes when people want to attack the Bible and attack the Word of God, they'll, they'll, they'll ask a question like this. They'll say, why do bad things happen to good people? And that's the type of question that Jesus is dealing with with the rich young ruler because it's a question rooted in an assumption as an attack of the Word of God, but the problem is the assumption is wrong. The question is wrong because the assumption is wrong. People ask the question, why do good things happen to, uh, or why do bad things happen to good people? And before we can ask the question, why do bad things happen to good people, we have to ask the question, is there a such thing as good people? Because the Bible says that there is none righteous. The Bible says that there is none that understandeth. There is none that seeketh after God. There is none that doeth good. No, not one. So before we start attacking God on the basis of why do bad things happen to good people, why don't we realize that there is no such thing as good people? And when we realize that, that there is none that doeth good and that, that we are all sinners, then we might ask the appropriate question, which is not why do bad things happen to good people, but what we should be asking is why do good things happen to any of us? 
Why do good things happen to bad people is the appropriate question because there is none that doeth good, no, not one. This is the idea that Jesus is dealing with. And oftentimes people will go to the story of the rich young ruler and they'll say, this is Jesus denying his deity. I would submit to you this morning that Jesus is not denying his deity. If anything, Jesus is confirming his deity and he is saying, hey, rich young ruler, you're right. I am good. But realize something. If I am good, then I am God. And the question that I would ask those who deny the deity of Christ, the question that I would ask to the Jehovah's Witnesses, to the Muslim, to the Hindu, to those who uh, would uh, testify that Jesus was a historical figure, that he really was a person, that he was a uh, teacher and a prophet, that he really did live, and they'll say he was a good man, he's a good teacher, he's a good prophet. The question that I would, I would ask him is this, is Jesus good? And the, uh, the answer that everyone would give to that question is, is this, yes, Jesus is good. And consider the fact that we might not say that, in fact, If we were honest with ourselves, no one would say that about any other historical figure. Pick a historical figure. It doesn't matter. Religious, political. Ask the question, is Alexander the Great good? Some people are going to say, well, I mean, he was great in the sense that he did this and he said that. But I know I don't think he was good. Was Abraham Lincoln good? And you might think he was a good president, but people would say, well, he had this in his life and that is why. What about George Washington? What about this figure? What about that figure? It doesn't matter who you ask. When you ask the question, is someone good? Inevitably, the answer has to boil down to, well, in whatever sense you're talking about, maybe in their career or with their ruling or with their job, they were good, but nobody's good. But when you ask the question, is Jesus good? The answer is inevitably yes. And that is a testimony to his deity Because if Jesus is good, which is true, then that tells us Jesus is God. And Jesus is dealing with this young man who says, good master. And Jesus says, well, here's what I know about you. You don't believe that I'm God, but you believe that I'm good. So he asks the question, why callest thou me good? None is good save one. That is God. See, this young man assumes something. He begins with an inappropriate assumption. It is this, that sinful men can be good. See, this young man believes that Jesus is a normal man, not deity, not the Son of God, that he is a human being that is good because this young man also believes that he is good. And Jesus begins by explaining, hey, there's one good and it's God. There's another assumption this young man makes. And it's found here in verse 18. Look at Luke chapter 18 and verse 18. And a certain ruler asked him, saying, Good master, notice the question. What shall I do to inherit eternal life? The first assumption we see from the rich young ruler is that he assumes that sinful men can be good. He is, we're going to see, assumes that he himself is good, and he believes that Jesus is a sinful man that it is, that is good, and Jesus begins to break down those assumptions by saying, first of all, there's none good except God. You're right, I am good, but that's because I am God. Then we see the second assumption, and the second assumption of this rich young ruler is this. He not only assumes that sinful men can be good, he also assumes that salvation can be earned. Notice the question there. What shall I do to inherit eternal life? I'd like you to keep your finger right there in Luke 18. And go with me, if you would, to the Gospel of Matthew. Matthew chapter 19. If you flip back 
past the book of Mark into the book of Matthew, Matthew chapter 19. Of course, we know that in the Gospels, we often find what are called parallel passages, where we get the same story in, different, in the different Gospel accounts, and we get different details in those Gospel accounts. And what we're supposed to do is compare spiritual things with spiritual and compare those parallel passages to get the full story because each one of these passages is emphasizing something a little different. Luke gives us part of this conversation between the Lord Jesus Christ and the rich young ruler. But to get the entire conversation or the full conversation, we need to compare the passage to the parallel passage in Matthew 19. Now, I'd like you to keep your finger there in Matthew 19 because we're going to flip back and forth as we walk through this conversation between the Lord Jesus Christ and the rich young ruler because I want you to understand the conversation and what it is that's being said. In Luke 18, Luke documents that the question that was asked was, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? That is correct. Luke is not incorrect about that. But Matthew gives us a little more detail when he tells us, the exactly what it is that this young man asked. Matthew 19, look at verse 16. We have the same story. Notice the question. And behold, one came and said unto him, Good master, the rich young ruler, comes to Jesus, and he asked the question. Notice what he says. He says, What? Now in Luke 18, 18, we read this. What shall I do to inherit eternal life? In Matthew 19, 16, Matthew documents this. He says, What good thing shall I do? that I may have eternal life. And I highlight that for you to help you understand that this young man had an assumption that salvation could be earned. He was not asking, what must I do to be saved? He wasn't saying, what do I need to believe in order to be saved? What is the right way of of doctrine for salvation? He was saying, what good thing? What good work? What do I need to do to ensure that I am on my way to heaven, that I may inherit eternal life. And again, I want you to understand, the problem with the question is that it is rooted in an an assumption that is an inappropriate assumption because he's asking, what good thing must I do, should I do to inherit eternal life? And he's beginning with an assumption that salvation can be earned. And that is an incorrect assumption. You don't have to turn there. You stay there in Matthew 19. Let me just read this for you. We could, I could read lots of verses on this. I'm not going to spend the time doing that. But let me just give you one verse if you want to jot this down for your notes. Titus 3.5 says this, Not by works of righteousness which we have done. Referring to salvation. Not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to His mercy He saved us by the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Ghost. If you and I are saved, if you and I get saved, it is by God's mercy, it is by God's grace, and it is not by works of righteousness, which we have done. See, he, he begins by saying, well, what works do I have to do? What good thing do I have to do to go to heaven, to inherit eternal life? And, and he's beginning with a question rooted in an inappropriate assumption. What are his assumptions? His assumptions are that sinful men can be good. And his assumptions are that salvation can be earned. And he's wrong. Keep your place right there in Matthew 19. We're going to actually stay right there in Matthew 19. Notice verse 17. Matthew 19, 17. And he, this is Jesus, said unto him, the rich young ruler, Why callest thou me good? We've seen this in Luke. 
There is none good but one, that is God. I want you to notice what the account in Matthew tells us Jesus said. He said, but, but, and keep in mind that the rich young ruler is coming at Jesus. I don't believe he's being disrespectful. We've seen other passages where the Pharisees are just being disrespectful to the Lord Jesus Christ. I don't believe that the rich young ruler was being disrespectful, but I do believe that his assumptions uh, brought him in a little bit of a hostile way to the Lord Jesus Christ, these assumptions that Jesus was a mere man, he was good, but a man, and that he himself was a good man, the, the idea that sinful men can be good, and that salvation can be earned, and he asks this very specific question, what good thing shall I do that I may have eternal life? And Jesus corrects him, we see that there in Matthew 19, 17, why callest thou me good? There is none good but one, that is God. And then Jesus says, but, to answer your question, but, If thou wilt enter into life, keep the commandments. He says, if you want to know what good thing you've got to do to go to heaven, what good works you've got to do to go to heaven, well, here's the answer to the question. It's a wrong question, but here's the answer to the question. Keep the commandments. You say, why would Jesus tell him to keep the commandments? Because technically it's true. Look, if someone could keep all the commandments perfectly, then they could go to heaven without Jesus. You say, what's the problem? The problem is this. No one can keep the commandments. As it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. For the wages of sin is death. The, the, if the question is, what do I have to do? What good thing do I have to do to go to heaven? The answer is, keep the commandments. But the question you should be asking is, how can someone go to heaven when they're a sinner? That's a different question that requires a different answer. Jesus says, you want to know the answer to your question? He says, but if thou wilt enter into life, keep the commandments. Now at this point, at this point, a logical and humble individual should have said, oh, well, I can't do that. See, not only do we see the assumption of the rich young ruler, but we're about to see the arrogance of the rich young ruler. Because when he asks the question, what good thing shall I do that I may inherit eternal life? And Jesus says, yeah, uh, here's the answer to your question. No big deal. If you want to know what you got to do, keep all the commandments. And at that point, he should have asked a different question, which is, well, I can't do that, so what can I do instead of that? But I want you to notice the arrogance of the young man. Verse 18, he, the rich young ruler, saith unto him, after Jesus just got done telling him, you got to keep all the commandments to go to heaven. He asked again the wrong question. Which? Jesus says, keep the commandments. He says, which? It's like, are you paying attention here? He didn't tell you to keep some of the commandments. He said, keep the commandments. He said, well, well which ones? Which commandments do I have to keep? Go back to Luke chapter 18. Luke chapter 18. I want you to flip back and forth between Matthew 19 and Luke 18 because I want you to understand the entire conversation that's happening here. If thou wilt enter into life, keep the commandments, Jesus says. He saith unto him, which? Which Jesus responds to that question, verse 20, thou knowest the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not kill. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor thy father and thy mother. I, wanna, I want you to understand something, and I want you to see something. 
In the Bible, there is what is known as the Ten Commandments. Those are the big ten. They cover pretty much everything. Those are not the only commandments. But those are the Ten Commandments that God gave us in the Old Testament to just kind of reference in general the commandments of God. I want you to notice that Jesus did not quote for him all Ten Commandments. He only quoted a few of the commandments. In verse 20, he says, Thou knowest the commandments. He says, Do not commit adultery. That's commandment number seven of the Ten Commandments. Do not kill. That's commandment number six of the Ten Commandments. Do not steal. That's commandment number eight of the Ten Commandments. Do not bear false witness. That's commandment number nine of the Ten Commandments. Honor thy father and thy mother. That's commandment number five of the Ten Commandments. I want you to notice that Jesus quotes for him five out of the Ten Commandments. Now again, I just want to deal with this idea. Why did Jesus bring up the commandments to the rich young ruler? Jesus, because people will often, they'll say, I don't understand, why doesn't Jesus just tell them, no, you don't have to do anything, it's believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. It's faith alone. Why is Jesus uh, talking about the commandments? And please understand something, Jesus did not start with belief for the same reason that you and I, when we go soul winning, do not start with belief. Because if you're honest with yourself, where do you and I start our soul winning presentation? We start as it is written. There's none righteous, no, not one. We start with, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. We start with, for the wages of sin is death. You say, why do we start there? Here's why we start there. Because you cannot tell somebody how to get saved until somebody is ready to acknowledge that they need to be saved. They first have to understand, hey, I'm a sinner in need of salvation before you can show them the Savior. And for that reason, it's the same reason that Jesus says, thou knowest the commandments. Do not commit adultery, do not kill, do not steal, do not bear false witness, honor thy father and thy mother. Why does Jesus begin here? For the same reason every good soul winner begins here is because somebody has to acknowledge the fact that they are a sinner on their way to hell before they can call upon a Savior. They have to realize that they are in need of salvation. Don't turn here. Let me just read this for you. Galatians 3.24 says this, Wherefore the law, which is what Jesus is quoting to this young man, Wherefore the law was our schoolmaster to bring us unto Christ. See, where false religion goes wrong is that God gives us, gave us the law. What was the purpose of the law? The purpose of the law was twofold. When it comes to society, it was to allow us to be able to live together in harmony, which is why he told us, don't kill, don't commit adultery, don't steal, don't do these things. When it comes to salvation, the purpose of the law was to show us that we are in need of a Savior. Because what should happen is you and I look at the laws of God and we measure ourselves up to the laws of God and we come to the conclusion that the wages of sin is death for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. That I can't keep the commandments of God. That I have not kept the commandments of God. And in that sense, the law is our schoolmaster or our teacher to bring us unto Christ. The purpose of the law is for us to look at the law, the law to look at us and to say, you're not good enough, you need Jesus. The problem with false religion is that we've taken the law and we've said, well, I can try to keep it as well as I can and hopefully it'll get me into heaven. Maybe I'll just try to keep it 
as best as I can. I know I'm not perfect, but I'll just try to keep the law of God, and that'll get me into heaven. Hey, you'll die and go to hell. So Jesus uses the commandments to show this young man that no one is good enough. But here's the problem with the rich young ruler. Here's the arrogance of the rich young ruler. Is that this guy, look at it, Luke 18, 21. And he, the rich young ruler, said, Jesus said, keep the commandments. He said, which ones? Jesus says, well, how about these? Don't commit adultery, don't kill, don't steal, honor your father, your mother. He said, keep keep those commandments. And the response from the rich young ruler, verse 21, and he said, all these have I kept from my youth up. He said, I've I've kept all those commandments. This guy literally thinks that his keeping of the law makes him good enough to go to heaven. You You say, is this guy arrogant? This guy is arrogant, but let me help you with something. This is the average religious person. This is the average unsaved religious person. And by the way, one of the reasons that we go verse by verse through passages, through books of the Bible, is so that we don't lose the context. And I want you to understand, this story, this conversation between Jesus and the rich and ruler is put here in this portion of Scripture, happened at this time to be in the context of something that we've already been studying in the Gospel of Luke. We looked at it last week. Remember the parable of the Pharisee and the publican? It's in the same chapter. Look look up at Luke 18.9. Luke 18, 9, and he, Jesus, spake this parable, the parable of Pharisee and the publican. Why did Jesus speak this parable? Unto certain which, notice, trusted in themselves. Trusted in themselves that they were righteous and despised others. Jesus has already given a teaching to the crowd, to the parables. He's already talked to them about the fact that you should not trust in yourself, that you are righteous that you're good enough, and you should not be filled with pride and despise others. And then comes this rich young ruler who not only has the assumption that he is good enough, also has the arrogance to believe that he has kept all the laws of God. I mean, part of me thinks that Jesus gave the parable of the Pharisee and the rich young ruler because the rich, uh, the Pharisee and the publican, because the rich young ruler was already in the crowd. Jesus was already... teaching these people, hey, don't trust in yourselves. He spake this parable unto certain which trusted in themselves that they were righteous and despised others. And this is who this young man is. Go with me, if you would, to the Old Testament book of Exodus, Exodus chapter 20. Should be fairly easy to find. It's the second book in the entire Bible, Genesis, then Exodus, Exodus chapter 20. This rich young ruler... This young man thinks that his keeping of the commandments makes him good enough for heaven. Jesus uses the commandments to show him that no one is good enough, and he thinks that his keeping of the commandments makes him good enough. He's full of pride. Because it's not of works. Years ago, I remember... My old pastor, when I was a kid growing up, Pastor Nichols, told a story about going out soul winning and witnessing to this little old lady 
And he asked her, do you know for sure if you died today, are you on your way to heaven? And he said that she was very nice, but she had a very arrogant attitude. And she said, well, of course, I know I'm on my way to heaven. She asked him, well, mind if I ask you, what is it that you're trusting in to get you to heaven? What gives you that confidence? She said, well, I've taught Sunday school for 30 years, and I've been married and faithful to my husband for 50 years, and I've done this and I've done that. She went through this. I've been baptized. She went through this whole litany of all the great things that she's done and all the things. And he looked at her and he said, you know, the Bible says, for by grace are you saved through faith. And that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. Not of works, lest any man should boast. This little old lady looked at him and said, I've been boasting, haven't I? And the truth of the matter is this, that those who believe that they're going to go to heaven because they've repented of their sins, those who believe that they're going to go to heaven because they've been catechized, because they've entered the confessional booth, because they've been baptized, or whatever list they're following from whatever religion they're following, all they're doing is boasting. Salvation is a gift that God pays for, lest any man should boast. There's no place for arrogance in salvation. There's no place for pride in salvation because salvation is me coming to Jesus saying, I can't do this. Now, real quickly, before we get into the third point, I want to take a quick break from the sermon and help you understand how the Ten Commandments are broken into two parts. Because Jesus uses this knowledge with this young man, and I want you to be aware of this to be able to understand the rest of this story. We saw, number one, the assumption of the rich young ruler, and we saw, secondly, the arrogance of the rich young ruler. The assumption was that sinful men could be good and that salvation could be earned. The arrogance of the rich young ruler is that when Jesus uses the commandments to show him that no one is good enough, he thinks that his keeping of the commandments makes him good enough. Now, let's take a break there from, from, from the story before I give you the third point. And quickly, let me explain to you the way that the commandments in the Bible are broken up. And specifically the Ten Commandments. When Moses was given the Ten Commandments, he was given the Ten Commandments on two tablets. Physically, two different tablets. Because of that, we've ref- we reference to the commandments being divided into two different tablets. Tablet, the first tablet or the second tablet. The first part or the second part. You'll notice that there is a theme with the dividing of the Commandments. You're there in Exodus chapter 20. And in Exodus chapter 20 is where, Jesus, where, where God gives us the Ten Commandments. Not the only place, but this is the main place where people go to to see it. In Exodus 20 and verse 3, I want you to notice we see the first commandment, Thou shalt have no other gods before me. In Exodus 20 and verse 4, we see the second commandment, Thou shalt not make unto thee any graven images. In Exodus uh, chapter 20 and verse 5, we see the second part of the, of the second commandment, which is, Thou shalt not bow down thyself to them. The, in verse 4 and verse 5, connect together to give us the second commandment, Thou shalt not make unto thee any graven images, and thou shalt not bow down thyself unto them. Verse 7, we have the third commandment, Thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain. Verse 8, we have the fourth commandment, Remember the Sabbath day. And in verse 12, we have the fifth commandment, Honor thy father and thy mother, that thy days may be long upon the land which the Lord thy God giveth thee. Want you to notice that on the first table, the commandments all have to do with our relationship with God. The first commandment is, Thou shalt have no other gods before me. That has to do with my relationship and God, to have no other gods. 
The second commandment is to not make any graven images and to not bow down unto them. That has to do between my relationship and God. The third commandment is to not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain. That has to do within, between my relationship and God. The fourth commandment is remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. That has to do with the Old Testament keeping of the Sabbath, which had to do with their relationship with God. By the way, I'm not preaching about the Sabbath, but let me just make this point. It's interesting to me that in the New Testament, you have several instances where Jesus quotes or rattles off the commandments, never all ten of them, but he does rattle off commandments at different part, uh, different points like we saw with the rich young ruler. And it's very interesting to me that in the entire New Testament, Jesus never quotes, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. The reason for that is because that commandment is part of the ceremonial law that is done away. It's part of the Old Testament that has been done away within the New Testament. But that Old Testament command has to do with our relationship or the Old Testament saints' relationship with God. Then you have the fifth commandment, which is a transitional commandment that has to do with God, but also with what the second tablet is about, which is our relationship with man. The, uh, the, the, the fifth commandment is honor thy father and thy mother. That has to do with our relationship with man, but that also has to do with our relationship with God because God is our heavenly father. So you have the two tablets. One has to do with our relationship with God. The other, the second tablet, has to do with our relationship with man. Look at it again, verse 12, the fifth commandment. Honor thy father and thy mother. That is a commandment that God has given all children to honor their parents. Verse 13 gives us the sixth commandment. Thou shalt not kill. Verse 14 gives us the seventh commandment. Thou shalt not commit adultery. Verse uh, 15 gives us the eighth commandment. Thou shalt not seal. Verse 16 gives us the ninth commandment. Thou shalt not bear false witness against thy neighbor. Verse 17 gives us the tenth commandment. Thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's house, and thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's wife, or his manservant, or his maidservant, or his ass, nor his ass, nor anything that is thy neighbor's. These commandments all have to do with our relationship with man. How we get along with other people. Honor your parents. Don't kill. Don't commit adultery. Don't steal. Don't bear false witness. Don't covet. That has to do with our relationship uh, with human beings. Now, go, go to Matthew. Matthew 22. First book in the New Testament. should be fairly easy to find. Matthew. In the Old Testament, God gave a lot of commandments. But he summed them all up in the ten, the big ten. And he divided the Big Ten into two tablets. The first tablet had the commandments that had to do with our relationship with God. The second tablet had the commandments that had to do with our relationship with man. In the New Testament, God takes the already condensed Ten Commandments and he condenses them even further into two commandments. Because he really wants us to remember this. He wants us to be able to understand this. So in Matthew 22, are you there? Look at verse 36. We have somebody else coming to Jesus asking the question. Matthew twenty-two thirty-six, 36. Master, which is the great commandment in the law? So they say, we know that God gave us the big ten, but out of the big ten, what's the big one? What's the great commandment in the law? Jesus said unto him, he says, look, if you've got to condense the commandments, I can condense them into two commandments. You want to know what the greatest commandment is? He says, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, with all thy mind. This is the first and the great commandment. 
Because here's the thing. If you love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, you're not going to take the name of the Lord thy God in vain. You're not going to worship other idols. You're not going to have other gods before him. You're not going to allow idolatry or other things to come between you and God. So Jesus says, hey, you, he said the, the first tablet can be condensed into this commandment, this statement. Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, and with all thy mind. This is the first and the great commandment. And then Jesus says, verse 39, and the second is like unto it. He said, here's the second greatest commandment. Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. You say, why did Jesus say that? Because the second statement, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself, encompasses the entire second tablet. Because if you love your neighbor as yourself, you're not going to commit adultery. You're not going to steal. You're not going to kill. You're not going to covet. You're not going to bear false witness. So Jesus says, hey, let me take the big ten and condense them even further into the big two. Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, and thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. Matthew 22, verse 40. Don't miss it. Notice what Jesus says. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. He says, if you could do these two things, love the Lord thy God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself, you don't have to worry about the rest. You'll do all the rest if you do those two. Now you're there in Matthew 22. Flip back to Matthew 19. Let's get back into our story. Remember, Jesus told this young man, keep the commandments. Matthew 19, 18. He saith unto him, which? Which one of the commandments do I need to keep? Jesus said, notice the commandments that are quoted here. Commandment number six, thou shalt do no murder. Commandment number seven, thou shalt not commit adultery. Commandment number eight, thou shalt not steal. Commandment number nine, thou shalt not bear false witness. Commandment number 19, uh, uh, verse 19, commandment number five, honor thy father and thy mother. And here in the Matthew passage, Jesus also, we're told, added this, and thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. I want you to notice that Jesus is focusing on the, the commandments of the second tablet, the commandments that have to do with our relationship with other men. And to that, the young man answers, verse 20, the young man saith unto him, all these have I kept from my youth up. And then he asked the worst question. He's already asked a series of bad questions. But because of this question, he's about to get the, uh, the knockout punch. And he says, I've done all of that. And then he says, what lack I yet? What am I lacking? So I want you to notice that in this story, we see the assumption of the rich young ruler. We see the arrogance of the rich young ruler. But I want you to notice thirdly this morning that we see the assessment of the rich young ruler. Jesus is about to put this young man to the test, and he does it because he asks. The young man asks the question, what lack I yet? And, you, and I think to myself when I read that, man, you're asking for it. You're asking Jesus, well, I'm perfect. I'm good. I can go to heaven based on my own merit. I can go to heaven because I'm such a good person. You told me to keep the commandments. I asked you which ones. You quoted all the commandments from the second tablet. I've done all of that from my youth. What am I missing? What am I lacking? Where am I deficient? What do I, what, what is left? 
Luke 18, verse 22. Look at it. Luke 18, 22. Now when Jesus heard these things, he said unto him, Yet lackest thou one thing. He said, I've done all that. What am I lacking? He said, I'm glad you asked. There's one thing you're lacking. You say, what is it? Notice what Jesus says. He says, sell all that thou hast and distribute unto the poor. Jesus said, I want you to sell everything you have and I want you to give it all away. Sell all that thou hast and distribute unto the poor and thou shalt have treasure in heaven and come and follow me. Jesus is showing this young man his sin by putting his finger right on it. Because, see, this young man had a problem. You say, what was his problem? His problem was not that he wasn't kind to others. He was very kind to others, I'm sure of it. His problem was not that he was committing adultery, that he was stealing, that he was lying, that he was being mean to people. No, when it comes to treat thy neighbor as thyself, he had it packed. He was good, but he had one major problem. What was his problem? His problem was that he loved something more than God. Luke 18, 23. And when he, the rich young ruler, heard this, what did he hear? Sell all that thou hast and distribute unto the poor. When he heard that, notice, he was very sorrowful, for he was very rich. See, the first part, or the first tablet, is this. Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, with all thy mind. This guy literally thought that he was good enough to go to heaven, but there was something that he was lacking, and what he was lacking was the fact that he loved his own riches more than he loved God. Though he had kept all the commandments from the second table, dealing with our relationship with man, he had failed to think of the commandments in the first table, dealing with his relationship with God. Because when he says, okay, well, what if God asks you to sell everything you have and give it to the poor? Are you willing to do that? And he went away sorrowful, for he was very rich. The other Gospels tell us that he went away sorrowful because he had great possessions. See, when we look at the assessment of the young man, we realize that he's not as good as he thinks he is. Because though he was very good to his neighbors, he had idols in his heart. He had things he loved more than God. And for him, they were riches. Now let me quickly give you some ending thoughts, and we've got a, little, a few more verses that we've got to get through to, to get through this passage. Let me give you some ending thoughts regarding salvation. As a result of this conversation, Jesus explains that it's hard for rich people to get saved. Luke 18, 24, and when Jesus saw that he was very, saw that he was very sorrowful, he said, this is what Jesus comments on this situation, he says, how hardly, the word hardly means barely or, or scantily, not a lot of. He says, how hardly shall they that have riches enter into the kingdom of God? And Jesus says, unfortunately, people with money often are not going to get saved. He doesn't, say that, he doesn't say that not anybody who's rich gets saved, but he says how hardly, how scarcely, how scantily, 
How barely is it that rich people enter into the kingdom of God? You say, why? Rich people tend to not be receptive to the gospel because rich people tend to rely on themselves. They don't need anything. They've got everything they need. They've got all the money they need. They've got all the houses they need, the vehicles they need. So when a soul winner comes up and says, hey, you're lacking something, you need Jesus, in their minds, and I don't know if they say it out loud, but subconsciously, there's this idea, I don't need anything. I'm fine. And Jesus says, how hardly shall they that have riches enter into the kingdom of God? Look at verse 25. For it is easier for a camel to go through a needle's eye than for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of God. And people often try to use this passage and say that this eye of the needle is a reference to some small gate in the wall of the city of Jerusalem where uh, a camel could not go through. It was like a, 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 just kind of a, off to the side. It was a, a gate that they used after hours or on the weekends when the main gates were closed. And the only way that a camel could go through there is to remove all of the luggage and packages off the camel and to get it on its knees, to crawl through this gate. And people like to use this passage and preach all sorts of things like that. The problem with that is that there is no evidence that such a gate ever existed. And you say, well, then what is it that Jesus is is saying here? Jesus is using hyperbole. He says, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle or a needle's eye than for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of God. Jesus would use a lot of hyperbole. Like, for example, when he said, when he told people to remove the beam out of their eye, they didn't literally have a two-by-four in their eye. Or when he talks about the Pharisees swallowing a camel and straining at a gnat, they weren't literally swallowing a camel. Jesus using hyperbole here and saying, look, it's not very easy to get a rich person saved. Now, the, the proof that Jesus is using hyperbole is the fact that in verse 26... The disciples respond, and they that heard it said, Who then can be saved? And he said, The things, these things which are impossible with man are possible with God. So obviously, he's not talking about a literal gate that camels could actually get through when he just tells you, Hey, I know that what I just said, getting a camel through a needle's eye, I know that is impossible, but here's what you need to understand the things which are impossible with man are possible with God. And the idea is this, that yes, it is hard to get rich people saved. You don't know it? Come out soul winning with us. Go for a few weeks. We go out to the poor neighborhoods. You get people, they'll talk to you. You give them the gospel, they get saved. You go to the nice neighborhoods, people slam the door in your face. Why? Because humility is needed for salvation. And I'm not saying that rich people won't get saved. Some of you here this morning are very rich and praise God for it. But how hardly shall they that have riches enter into the kingdom of God? And the true idea is this, not just that it's hard for rich people to get saved, but it's a miracle that anyone gets saved. The things which are impossible with man are possible with God. It's impossible for you, a sinner, no matter how good you are. You say, I grew up in church. I've been in church my whole life. I've lived a pretty good life. I don't smoke, I don't chew, and I don't go with the girls that do. But let me tell you something. No matter how good you are, you're not good enough. And it's a miracle that any one of us will get to heaven. It's by the grace of Jesus Christ, by the miracle of salvation, the things which are impossible with man are possible with God.
But then I want you to know just real quickly, and I, I got to finish this up. Not only do we see some ending thoughts regarding salvation, but we see some ending thoughts regarding discipleship. Because I want you to understand, when Jesus told him to sell all that you have and distribute unto the poor, Jesus was not telling him that that is how somebody gets saved. Because that is not how somebody gets saved. This guy told Jesus, hey, I'm already on my way to heaven. So Jesus' response to him is, okay, well, if that's true, then let's move you on from salvation to discipleship. Sell all that thou hast and distribute unto the poor. Notice what he says, Luke 18, 22, and thou shalt have treasure in heaven. Jesus is going along with this guy, assuming he's on his way to heaven, and he says, and come and follow me. See, the command to sell all that thou hast and distribute unto the poor is not a command of salvation, but a command of discipleship. Being saved and being a disciple are two different things. You get saved by believing on the Lord Jesus Christ. You get saved by realizing I'm a sinner and I deserve to go to hell and I'm putting my faith in Jesus Christ. You become a disciple by denying yourself, taking up your cross, and following Christ. The command to sell all that you have is Jesus playing along with this young man and saying, okay, I mean, I can't get you lost. You think you're saved. You think you're on your way to heaven. Okay, well, here's step two. Sell everything you have. Distribute it to the poor and come and follow me. Come be my disciple. Do you realize that this guy got an invitation from the Lord Jesus Christ to be the 13th disciple? The 13th apostle! But he went away sorrowful because he had great possessions. See, here's what you need to understand. The call to sell all that we have and to give it to the poor is not for salvation but for discipleship. Jesus was trying to highlight for this young guy, you're not even saved and you're not, you, you've got things you love more than God. Please understand something. It would be wrong for you to walk away from this passage believing that God expects everyone to sell all that they have and to follow him because that is not true. All the disciples had to leave, forsake all. The disciples, they left their nets and their fathers and they straightway followed him. They forsook all and followed him. But not everybody was asked by Jesus to sell all and to follow him. Jesus does not expect every disciple to sell all and to follow him. But let me be clear about something. Jesus does expect every disciple to be willing to sell all and to follow him. Jesus does expect you to be willing to do that. And, And let me just say this. Jesus does expect some disciples to do that. Because here's what you need to understand. The reason that Jesus tells them, sell all that you have and follow, distribute unto the poor and follow me, is because that was that rich ruler's hang-up. That was his hang-up. That was his besetting sin. He loved his money. So Jesus says, well, sell it all, give it to the poor, and follow me. Other people may have other hang-ups. For some people, if Jesus told them, sell everything you have and follow me, that would be no problem. Do you understand that? If Jesus told me, if Jesus came to me today, if Jesus came to me and my wife and said, I want you to sell everything you have, take all, all your wealth on this world, sell it all, and come follow me, I would tell Jesus, okay, give me 15 minutes. That's all it's going to take. I mean, if Jesus said to me, sell everything you have, 
forsake all worldly riches and follow me, I would say, done. What's next? Because I don't have any riches. <laughs> it's easy to forsake all and follow Jesus when you got nothing. The, the, the thing with the rich young ruler is that he not only had a lot, but he loved it all. That was his hang-up. The thing is not that Jesus was telling him to sell that and to distribute that. He's telling all of us that. But what Jesus is telling us is you have to be willing to give up. Not to get saved, but to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. You have to come and follow him. You have to be willing to give up that one thing you love more than God. For some people, it's riches. For other people, it's drugs. For other people, it's sexual sins. For other people, it, it can be different things for different people. The question I have for you this morning is this. What is it that you're not willing to give up? What, what is the one thing that if Jesus said, get rid of that, get rid of it, come follow me, you would walk away sorrowful and say, I'm not willing to give it up. What is it? See, the assessment of the young man is not only are you not saved, you're not ready to be a disciple because you love money more than God. And I'm not trying to hurt your feelings this morning, but I do want to be clear. The reason some of you are not disciples and you'll never be disciples is because you have idols in your heart. You've got things that you just say, I'm not willing to give up. So how do I, how do I fix that? Here's how you fix it. Jesus says, if you love money, sell it. If you have a relationship that is an inappropriate relationship, get rid of it. You say, for salvation? No, no. Salvation, you don't earn Salvation. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. But if you want to be a follower of Jesus Christ, you want to be a disciple of Jesus Christ, you want to come and follow him, you better not be unwilling. You better be ready to take up your cross, die to self, I die daily, deny myself, and follow Jesus. So here's the question for you. What are you unwilling to give up? What's the thing? What's your thing? What's the besetting sin? That If Jesus said, give that up, you would have to walk away sorrowful because you love that more than you love God. And in that context, let me just finish the next three verses. We'll be done. In that context, Peter asked the question, Luke 18, 28. Then Peter said, lo, we have left all and followed thee. Peter's like me. He didn't have much. He's like, well, wait a minute. That guy wasn't willing to leave all, but I left it all. We have left all and followed thee, Jesus. Here's a lesson on discipleship. Peter says, hey, what about those of us, as opposed to the rich young ruler, who was not willing to leave it all, not willing to sell it all? And by the way, let me just say this, and let me just be clear about this. If Jesus asked me to give up everything I have, it'd be done. It'd be done. I'd make one phone call and it'd be done. I don't have much. I mean, my wife and I would have to take one 10-minute trip to the Goodwill, and it's like, okay, Jesus, what's next? For some of you, for some of you, you have a lot. You've got cars and RVs and motorcycles and 401Ks and all sorts of things, and there are some of you that have a lot, and I believe that if Jesus came to you and said, sell it all and give it to the poor, you'd do it. And praise God for it. God's not asking you to get rid of what you have. But he does want you to be willing to give it up. There are some of you that love God, and I know God has blessed you financially, but your heart's not there. Your heart is with God. God has blessed you because he can trust you. But let me say this. There are some of you here today 
who if Jesus said, okay, sell it all. Trust me. You're going to have trouble with that. You should identify that this morning. And ask God to help you. Ask God to remove that thing. Nothing between my Lord and the, uh, my, my sin, myself and the Savior. To remove that thing that comes before God, that you love more than God, that you're more loyal to than God. Peter asks the question, we have left all and followed thee. What about us? And Jesus responds, verse 29, he said unto them, this is for those that have forsaken all and followed Jesus. He says, verily I say unto you, there is no man that hath left house or parents or brethren or wife or children for the kingdom of God's sake who shall not receive manifold more in this present time and in the world to come life everlasting. So what does that mean? He says, you're going to be recompensed in this life and you're going to be recompensed in the life to come. He's not saying you're going to get life everlasting. He says you're going to be recompensed in your life everlasting. Now, let me just quickly just key in on one word to help you understand because sometimes when you read these verses, people get this idea. They're like, okay, so I give God all my money. He's going to give me a lot of money back. If I give him every, you know, he's going to give me, no, no, no. Notice what he says. Who shall not receive, here's the key word, manifold. Is that word manifold? The word manifold means many and in various ways. Here's what he, here's what he says. No one has left house or parents or brethren or wife or children. Some of you have had to make deci- made decisions because your parents or your siblings or your friends are reprobates or just hostile to the things of God and you've had to choose to, to, to uh, give that up to follow Jesus. Some people have left houses and riches and gone to the mission field to serve God. Some people, we, we've, we, all of us who have served God, to some extent, have given something up for the cause of Christ. And Jesus says, hey, you've not given up house or parents or brethren or wife or children. There's nothing you've given up for the kingdom of God's sake who shall not receive manifold more in this present time. He said, God is going to give you uh, rewards in this world. But he says, please understand this. They're manifold. They're many and in various ways. So he's not saying, you give up money and I'll give you money. He says, no, no. You give up anything and I will bless you in many different ways. For some people, it may be money. But you know there are some things that are more important than money? There's some things I'd rather have than money. I mean, if God came down and said, I'll give you a million dollars right now, or your children can grow up and serve the Lord. (laughs) Keep your money. I mean, I mean, there are some things that are a better, a better but I'd rather have a good marriage than have money. Amen. I'd rather have a good relationship with my children than have money. Amen. I'm not mad at you if you have money. I'm, I'm just telling you, I want you to understand something, that the blessings of God are not just monetary. Sometimes they are, and praise God for it, but they're so manifold more. Amen. Who shall not receive manifold more in this present time and in the world to come. So we see the rich young ruler. We see his assumptions. Sinful man can be good, and salvation can be earned. He was wrong. We see his arrogance. Jesus brings up the commandments to show him that no one is good enough, 
and he looks at the commandments and says, I am good enough. And we see his assessment. And Jesus puts his finger right on his sin and says, yeah, I know you've kept the first, the second table, but you haven't done a good job at keeping the, good, the first table because I know you love money more than God. So here's your assessment since you're asking, what do I lack yet? Here's your test. Sell all that you have. Distribute to the poor and follow me. Jesus puts his finger on his sin. And he fails the test. He walks away sorrowful because he was very rich. And the rich young ruler learns what everyone will learn, that no one is good enough to go to heaven. Everyone will learn that someday. You either learn that in this life and you get saved, or you learn that in the second life before you get thrown into hell. Let's bow our heads and have a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you, Lord, for the story. I know there's a lot there, and it can be complicated. Thank you for allowing us to learn it. And I pray, Lord, if there's anybody here who's trusting in their righteousness, if there's anybody here who's trusting in their righteousness to go to heaven, I pray you would not let them leave without changing their mind, humbling themselves, realizing that they are a sinner on their way to hell and they need Jesus and to call upon him for salvation. And Lord, for those of us that are saved, I pray you'd help us to deal with that thing we're not willing to let go. For some, it's riches. For some, it's other stuff. Help us to sing that song in integrity. I'd rather have Jesus than riches or gold. I'd rather have Jesus than anything this world can afford. I pray you'd help us to be disciples who would say, I want Jesus. I don't need anything else. I want Jesus. In the matchless name of Christ, we pray. Amen. We're going to have Brother Matt come up and lead us in a final song. Just want to give you a couple of reminders. First of all, don't forget that if you are part of our Striving Together new members class, uh, the class is going to